who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Who you are defines how you build. Welcome Stanford and YouTube communities to the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar, um, brought to you by STVP, the Entrepreneurship Engineering Center in the School of Engineering at Stanford, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, we are thrilled to have Austin Russell here to ETL. Austin is the 27-year-old founder and CEO, CEO of Luminar. How many people have heard of Luminar? Oh, fantastic. Okay, so as you guys, as many of you already know, Luminar is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company that makes LiDAR sensors, hardware and software senses, sensors for the automotive industry. LiDAR, as you know, is an amalgamation of two words, light and radar. It is using photonics and optics for 3D visualization and analytics and intelligence. Now, before I give Austin's formal introduction, let me explain why I am so excited to have Austin here with us today. Um, as you guys may know, you know the, the essence of entrepreneurship, the definition of entrepreneurship, comes from Harvard Business School professor Howard Stevenson. He's generally the one that people use when they're citing academically. And he defines entrepreneurship as the pursuit of opportunity without regard for resources controlled. Or said another way, it's about pursuing opportunity unbridled by constraints, where really the vision is your currency and your energy source to overcome obstacles that might be in your way and true entrepreneurs can unlock locks and overcome challenges that others can't, and they're usually driven by a vision that transcends the obstacles in front of them. For me, Austin is a quintessential modern-day entrepreneur. And it's not just because his pursuits are entrepreneurial, it's because his pursuits are deeply contrarian. And, <laughs> and, 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 and in the pursuit of that, the entrepreneurship side stands out in even starker relief. So let me just set the stage for that as I introduce Austin. Austin grew up in Southern California in Irvine. or yeah, at, Newport, Newport, Irvine, yeah, exactly, near, near, County. Near Irvine, yeah. um, and actually started Luminar while he was in high school. Were you 16? Is it 16 or 17? Uh, yeah, yeah. 16. Then he gets admitted to Stanford, an honor that many of you can relate with deeply. Um, comes to the farm, but drops out sort of three to six months into Stanford. Um, uh, he gets a Teal Fellowship for 100K, and he decides to stop out of Stanford. That alone is a momentous decision. I think many of you can understand the gravity of that. But what's more is, is that Austin goes all in into one of the most unsexy spaces at the time. Okay? So he decides to pursue optics and photonics in 2012. So he's not stopping out to go after a sexy area that is sort of a foregone conclusion of success. He's not going to start a crypto company or even a software company. He's doing hardware, and he's doing deep tech hardware. Okay, um, it's any it's classically the things that any mainstream VC would tell you to run for the hills and avoid. Um, he Sounds also right. decides to do not just hardware, but it's capital intensive hardware. His first product with his first vision is going to cost him the tens of millions of dollars. It's it's not just a couple hundred thousand dollars to create an MVP or a white paper. <laughs> There are deeply entrenched competitors. So I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the Google cars with those flying buckets you know, of, of LiDAR sensors. Apple's working on this. Um, and he decides to go head to head with them. And he's 17. 
and he decides to drop out of Stanford. He doesn't have a PhD, let alone even a bachelor's degree. Okay, you fast forward nine years later, in 2021, he's raised $450 million. The company has gone public, and he has retained 33% ownership of the company. Um, just as comparison, if you look at other software companies or other young founders like Aaron Levy from Box, um, who did a classic software enterprise viral company, he has 5% of equity when he goes public after having raised similar amounts of money. And so not only has he built something that is deeply disruptive, he's also done it in a way where he's also retained significant ownership. So how did he do it? And how did he overcome the challenges and obstacles that many of you may have confronted along that journey? Well, those questions and more, hopefully we will answer in the next hour. So everybody, please welcome Austin. So Austin, let me give the floor to you first of all. Is there anything that you want to explain to people that don't know Luminar about what Luminar does? Well, I mean, from what you said, it sounds like a horrible idea. I don't know why anyone in their right mind would uh, stay within a mile of... No, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think you give a little bit of the overview there too. Obviously, it was, it was quite a journey, you know, being able to, to, get, to get to the point. But, um, you know, in terms of the whole concept around Luminar in the first place was to be able to create a, a new kind of, you know, breakthrough ground up uh, system for LIDAR, you know, which as you said, stands for flight detection ranging. Uh, it's basically sort of the eyes of the autonomous car that sends out laser pulses in the environment to know exactly how far away things are, measuring the speed of light. You know, you guys are familiar um, if you're if you're familiar. Um, but basically, what we had to do was create something that would be for production uh, vehicles that consumers could be able to utilize. And there's a lot of different contrarian, as you said, bets a lot that we had to make along the way. But the ultimate goal and what we were able to achieve. Uh, was to be able to build something that could dramatically enhance the driving experience, enhance the driver, as opposed to replacing the driver, and be able to work with uh, now the majority of major global automakers to enable next generation safety and autonomous capabilities on their next generation vehicle lineups. So, um, so yeah, working with automakers is, is not easy, but it's very incredibly rewarding when you're able to, be, to succeed at that. And that's really uh, where I think we have an opportunity um, and are fortunately having the ability to change, you know, um, millions of lives along the way that for, from the adopters of these vehicles uh, as, it be, as it gets out there more and more so. But basically for the first time, I think we're seeing this transformation in the autonomous vehicle space from all R&D into actual real production cars and we're effectively spearheading that. Um, and again, the important part is, is that it's not just about the self-driving part, it's also about the safety part. And, um, and, and the holistic mission there is uh, and we can talk at some point about some of the longer term vision, but uh, the, the mission there is to be able to uh, dramatically improve collision avoidance capabilities on vehicles, which you know sometimes people take for granted, but the reality is is that um, the problem has never been worse where more and more people, more and more cars are getting into more and more accidents, even despite all the technology advancements that have happened on vehicles over the past couple of decades. So that's what we're really looking to be able to turn around and solve. Uh, one of the leading causes of death globally and uh, suffering. So that's an important part of it as well. And you articulate that in a vision statement. I want you to share what your vision statement is. And can you share how early on in the journey you crystallized that vision statement and what recommendations you have to other founders in terms of how important it is to articulate yep. a vision and when they should put focused attention on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the, the most recent iteration of this, and this is from, you know, coming from a few years ago, basically we have this 100-year vision uh, for what's laid out. And the 100-year vision is to save as many as 100 million lives and 100 trillion hours of people's time out on the road over the next 100 years. 
And every single thing that we do as a company all adds back up towards that vision. And I think it's just really important of, um, you're gonna have amazing days as an entrepreneur, you're gonna have horrible days that you wish uh, uh, you wish you didn't exist, and you know you, you just you're going to have to go always back to that that holistic mission and meaning um, for not just yourself but that whole team around. You know what are what are we actually doing? What's inspiring in terms of the greater purpose around what we're building and and why it's there? And I think the more inspiring of a holistic mission that you can have, the better a talent that you're going to be able to attract, uh, the more impact you're going to have. And I think just frankly, um, there's going to be just a lot more satisfaction with everything that you do but you know it doesn't always have to start out um so 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 grandiose it can even just be as um you know i mean the, the first part is just make the best lidar make the best technology you know you can have i mean even that in itself was ambitious enough because you said we're basically competing with like you know the googles and apples and every major automaker and every major tier one and other folks there but then you know at some point you just have to keep building and building and building on top of that until you can kind of have this bigger picture holistic mission um, that everything can roll up under and everything that you do and i think identifying that as early on as possible whatever that may be is absolutely critical to the success of a new company that's uh, looking to get great talent and up against um, incumbents that just don't have that same kind of direction so I just want to underscore that. So even at the very beginning, you did have, I don't know if you articulated it as a vision, but you had a focus statement that, yeah. that, that was critical. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, abso yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think it, like, it, was, it was that, and then it was you know, make autonomy safe and ubiquitous, and then you know, we ultimately crystallized it to that 100-year vision. But even when you were a Stanford student, you were about to drop out. Even at that stage of the company, you had a- Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 100%, yeah. And so can, we, can you take us back? So I want to ask the question that's sort of the elephant in the room for all of our aspiring entrepreneurial Stanford students is, what advice would you give to the Stanford students that are wrestling with whether or not they should drop out of Stanford and pursue something entrepreneurial? How do they know if it's the right decision or the wrong decision? <laughs> that's, a, um, <clears throat> that's a good question. And the, and the reality is, is that there, there is no single right decision or single wrong decision uh, for everything. And I think it's the same thing that even, even Peter Thiel said you know, when he was first convincing me or some of the other Thiel fellows that he joined with in, in, in dropping out, um, is that it, it's, it's, if you know that timing is important in terms of pursuing a journey or an idea or a concept or something that you have uh it's you know it's not going to wait for you like it's not gonna um sometimes you just really have to capitalize on opportunities that are there then like if um the reality is is that if i had waited until you know for example like in this specific case like graduated let's say i probably would have had well i probably would have had like a probably a PhD probably right around now, you know, too, in terms of what, what we were building when we did graduate um, uh, from this field. And it would be way too late to try and pursue anything in this field. Like, it, it would already be uh, completely dominated by, by a host of other players. So sometimes timing is very important. Um, the other part is, is just, um, I think uh, you have to be able to succeed in a few different dimensions and a few different personality traits. And I think there's three very specific things that have to intersect at the same time. And that's curiosity, drive, and passion. All three of those things have to come together at the same time. You're missing any one of those things, you can't be successful as an entrepreneur. So I think that, but when that does come together, um, and it's, it's something that you really believe in and 
frankly, is, like I said, other people believe in and your customers believe in too, or will believe in for that matter, then um, there's really no reason why you can be successful independent. Like you can be at school, you can not be at school. That's, that's, all, that's all good. But uh, I think on balance, um, I will say that Stanford is, you know, one of the realistically the, you know, uh, foremost at probably being at the forefront of all this and encouraging that entrepreneurship and the right kind of environment uh, to be able to foster exactly that. So I think like probably of any academic environment that is like generally good for fostering that kind of thinking and mentality, like it's, it's certainly here. So. And so just to make this clear, it's like, how were you feeling in, when, when you made the decision to drop out? Was there fear? Did you have any fear about that decision? Was there gravity on that decision? Or did it feel pretty easy and natural? No, super easy and natural. Super I, easy no, and natural. No, no, no There was no, no consternation. Not, not, not at all. Not okay, Austin's really. dad's in the audience, <laughs> and your parents yeah. didn't say, "Son, I don't." Well, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a different one. Yeah, my my dad is in town here too. I'm looking looking at him. That's uh, uh, yeah. It was it was definitely different different kind of discussion that's that's happening there. I think the thing is is that if if you don't. Um, you need to have like an extreme amount of conviction, you know, in whatever you're doing. Like, um, if you don't get over that barrier, you yeah. know, you're 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 not going to be able to make it in the real. So you so you real you you really have to be confident in in what you're doing to be uh, to be successful. Frankly, even if even if you're like blissfully ignorant and confident in there too, if you have enough confidence, then then uh, you know it's amazing what you can do. So let's talk about how you source that conviction. Because I, I, it does feel very clearly that you had this clear conviction that you would miss out on the opportunity if you didn't yep. take action then. But so many people at the time, if you were looking at doing something that was deeply technical, it's going to cost tens of millions of dollars to build. Um, how did you have enough? What, what, what was required for you to, um, to, to put the dots together to say that the timing is now for me to focus on optics and photonics in 2012 to have the conviction to actually go all in? Uh so I, I would just say for optics and photonics generally, and by the way, I, I think the timing actually still is now. I think the timing is for the next, um, uh, you know, couple of decades for that matter. Like, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, that, and I sort of saw a theme and it had a thesis that, you know, what electronics was to the 20th century, you know, optics and photonics and optoelectronics would be to the 21st century in terms of just major innovations and iterations and um, problems being solved at a global scale that can deliver massive amounts of value <laughs> and saw that as also like the clearest path to be able to make you know sort of a, a global change and um, uh, also make a lot of money while doing it at the same time so I think when it comes down to it um, being able to identify broader themes is a really interesting way and just sort of these trends that and it's not going to be the stuff that everybody's talking about frankly a lot of times like if everybody's talking about it then it's probably like over like it, it, you're going to have a lot of competition you're going to have a lot a lot of different people focused on things like you want you want to find um niches to be able to start off with that are specific now in this case like optic photonics in and of in and of itself a niche um but it's different in the sense that for example um, like most major, I mean, talk about universities, like, like most major universities, like you have like electrical engineering programs, you have computer science programs, you have other things like photonics programs. You don't like, there's no 99.9% .9 of schools don't have, like you can't, 
graduate as an undergrad in photonics. You know, that's not even a thing. So, um, and like actually Stanford's like one of the foremost, you know, experts on that, you know, more, more generally in terms of the level of talent that, um, that that's had here. And uh, even then that's like almost pretty much entirely the graduate school. So, you know, it's just interesting to see those dynamics. And the important part is, I think, is seeing interdisciplinary connections and just being able to actually ensure that it's applied to the real world and that there is a practical application of that kind of product or technology or whatever it is that you're building, as opposed to just doing, say, research for the sake of research, which I think is still a little bit of a struggle with the academic community, which nevertheless is extremely important um, you know, for the fundamentals of everything that's done. But um, I think it can all benefit from more entrepreneurship. Okay. So it, sounds, so it sounds like you connected the dots between the potential and the markets. It captured your passion, your, your, your curiosity, yeah. and your drive. And so that was enough for you to commit your one precious life to this at, at stand when you were to drop out and go full time on this all in. Yeah. When was the moment? When in other you, words, YOLO. YOLO. <laughs> no. YOLO. And back back when that was that term was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Probably dating myself from all the younger generation. But when was the moment then that you actually knew that um, you would succeed? When the that the product actually was going to realize the vision that you had mentally and be a market success. Um, and how did you? I mean, it? I sort of like. I mean, maybe it sounds kind of crazy at the time. Like, I had a lot of conviction that it was going to be successful. We're going to to, to make it work. Um, I think, you know, for for what it's worth, like as an entrepreneur, you you sort of have to take the mentality that like failure is not an option. Um, you know, and uh, Apollo style, where no matter what you do, like you have to succeed. You have to make this work. So, like, you, if you're going all in on something. You know, you have to you have to do that uh, in a very, very intelligent um, capacity, and I think um, uh, kind of like that. You know, that Warren Buffett saying, "Like, don't put all don't put all of your eggs in uh, a bunch of different baskets. Put it all in one basket and watch that basket very carefully." <laughs> so, um, yeah, in, in, in this case, like you have to build. You know, and uh, I think I would say probably like. I don't know, within the first year of sort of what I was doing there too, I, I, you know, I didn't know the full extent of what you know, it could do and what it could ultimately mean by, by like any stretch of the imagination. But I knew that it was valuable. I knew it was impactful. And frankly, like when you're in a technology ecosystem and you can build valuable technology, like it's amazing how much interest you can get from like, you know, from potential you know, customers, in this case, automakers, technology companies, other stuff. People want to, uh, you know, people will want to buy technology from you. People will probably want to even buy your holistic company if it really is that breakthrough. So, you know, if you can build the right breakthrough tech in the first place and get that product market fit, that makes all the difference. I just want people to get a good feel for the difference between great and good. <laughs> you're, you're the youngest self-made billionaire for a reason, and so I want them to understand what what, what, did, what does validation feel like when you're in one of these, you know, mega unicorns. So. I understand. It sounds like from day one you had 100% conviction that it was going to succeed. But there was a moment when maybe you could relax a little bit because you had the external validation that it was going to succeed. Can you give us any more tactical um, uh, detail on what numbers you were sensitive to that gave you that validation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and and we, like I said, we had raised obviously a lot of capital and other stuff along the way. Um, I mean, I, I, I would say though that that the true validation never like. You never get a hundred percent true validation, like until very, very late in the game, like probably like ten years in. Maybe that's when you get like start to get your true, true validation for it. But I mean, the reality is, is that different steps along the way. I would say, 
like the first sort of major iteration of the product of like, you know, the first time when we had everything come together with the LiDAR, you know, flipped on the switch and everything can actually image, you know, and it can work as it, you would expect it to work. And, you know, your theoretical calculations match up with the real world. Like those are the moments that's like the mind blowing moments. Um, you know, at the same time, it's like the first moment when we came out of stealth mode, we were actually, we had no press, no interviews, no public website, no anything for the first five years of the business. That, that was that. Um, would you recommend that, by the way? Because it sort of goes against, it's another contrarian move. Most yeah. people would say, let's fumble towards victory, iterate, you release and, 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 mention, and talk and interact with the market frequently so that you get feedback. You went into deep stealth for five years. Yep. Was yep. that the right decision? Absolutely, like 100%. I mean, honestly, like, um, I think the distinction is, is that, um, if you, we kind of half jokingly had to say that we had to find 2,000 ways to not build a LiDAR before finding the way that would actually solve the problem for all these different dimensions and everything of what it takes to be able to make this happen. And you want to do that behind closed doors. Like you want to be able to make sure in a world of where everyone is always, you know, over promising and under delivering like in, you know, the startup-y aura of hype sphere, like you, there is value in um, under-promising and over-delivering, or frankly, just not promising literally anything at all, like hence, you know, being deep in stealth mode. But then when you do have that, and when you're ready to be able to show it off, um, <clears throat> I mean, I think it was like literally the first time that uh, we, we launched out of, um, out of stealth mode, you know, next thing you know, you know, you have, um, uh, like just breakneck interest from everything from the customer side to, I mean, I, I think I think we were, you know, uh, getting these like huge features from like Bloomberg and the New York Times and like. And other how do you features. how do you overcome the criticism, which is like the classic customer development trend over the last decade that yeah. you know you want to get outside of uh, outside of the business, interact directly with your end customers, and iterate quickly. Um, and you can you can do that too, and, and still be we, in stealth. Uh, you, okay. Absolutely, you you can do that and still be in stealth. It's very good. Just make sure that you know everybody has everybody's properly NDA'd. Everybody you'd like make sure you have the right um, the right frameworks for things. But uh, you can operate in stealth and do those uh, do all of those things. Like there's and in fact, I think actually like there's some element. I mean, in this case, we were. Um, I mean, talk about like other unconventional things. Like we were, I, I had this network of like hacker houses, you know, they call it, like it was almost, it was very Silicon Valley show-esque um, that I used in part to be able to fund the business. And, and uh, one of them was actually this, this compound on the, on the top of the hill in Portola Valley, actually just what, like 10 minutes up the road here. And, um, and, and that, was, that was one where it was like, that was actually where we would like live and work out of and just be able to build these kinds of different products and systems. And it was like such a different, um, it was like you would just enter a completely different universe when you would come into it. And it, it was almost isolated from the rest of like reality of like the dimensions and constraints of what's possible. And it was like you didn't, you didn't have to worry about any of the noise, didn't have to worry about any of this stuff, and you just focus on what you need to do. And that, that focus part, I think it goes back to, is, is definitely critical, but it's all those things that add up that, that make a difference. And so I want to dive into some of the creative things that you did, because even if you have the conviction, you know it's right, being a 17 or 18-year-old kid needing to raise, you ended up raising $450 million, but even raising your first money, um, even if you know that you're right, is a challenge. It's a challenge even for people that have 
a much deeper pedigree under their belts when they go into VC funds. Can you talk about the creative ways in which you got financing? Obviously, the Peter Thiel check was 100K. It's great, but it's not <laughs> enough to build a next-gen LiDAR system. How, and how did you get financing um, and any unintuitive tactics that you use that you would share with others? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and uh, but by the way, for, for, for what it's worth, I think by the time we're, um, we're done, uh, it's probably well over, you know, a billion and a half dollars in terms of total, total financing. There a too, billion so. and a half dollars. <laughs> and yeah. can you share what percentage yeah. of the company you still own? Uh, yeah, but about, a, about a third. About a third. I think yeah. that's unprecedented. <laughs> in my, you know, in my 20 years of, of venture. But, but okay, so, so spill. Yeah. <laughs> share, share the insights yeah, on how, how did a 17-year-old kid get your initial funding? Any, uh, any unintuitive ha tactics or hacks yeah. that you can oh, share? Oh, yeah. There, there's, there's, there's a lot. Uh, there's, and there's a lot of craziness, too. Like, this is, um, oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, first and foremost, um, the reality is, is that raising money, particularly in the early stages of a business, is extremely dilutive. Um, money is always the most expensive, so to say, in the early stages by orders of magnitude. Um, actually, you know what's really, it's really funny. Um, so I was just there with, um, actually here we are in the, you know, Jensen Wong um, auditorium here too. Actually, just a, <clears throat> a couple hours ago, uh, or a few hours ago earlier today, we announced this big deal with Mercedes uh, alongside uh, NVIDIA there too, which was a like, fantastic outcome and expanding across their whole lineup of vehicles um, for the next generation technology that we're building on it. And we actually was there with, uh, with Jensen, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, funnily enough, and was like, oh, we'll speak in your auditorium later. Hey, like, so that's, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, and it's, it's so weird, by the way, too, like being here, like, when I was in the audience like 10 years ago, you know, to taking a look at like some of these talks and other things and like kind of coming full circle. Um, but the thing that I remember um, Jensen saying here too, just, uh, just a couple hours ago was that uh, he, the big thing that he wanted to do, the first thing he did when he IPO'd was he wanted to buy his, uh, his parents' uh, Mercedes. And uh, I think it was, it was like, a $50,000 Mercedes that he ended up buying for it. And he's like, that was the most expensive Mercedes ever um, because that now, he's like, it did the math and now that's the equivalent of a $200 million Mercedes, you know, based on the current value of where NVIDIA is at. So, you know, it goes to show like, point is, is that if you, if you believe in a long-term growth trajectory, you know, you, you can like, Money is very, very expensive. But in the early stages... Wait, he spent that 50000 at the beginning of the company? Is that yeah, what? yeah, okay. towards, the, towards the beginning. Towards of the the beginning. Then, and he couldn't put that into his... Like, business. orders of magnitude growth. If he held on to it instead of selling that portion of stock, or whatever, yeah. you know, would have been, uh, orders, you know, $200 million. Got it. Yeah. That was the uh, joke about the yeah, $200 million Mercedes. So, um, but uh, the point is, is that I, I think... Um, the, the, the early on, it's very important to try and be creative and thoughtful about how you finance. And, you know, one of the things that the strategies that I took early on is because we had so much conviction in terms of long-term value about what we could create. And this, um, I think, like safe notes in particular is a certain mechanism of financing that was originally started by Y Combinator and, and proliferated throughout. It was, um, how do we say, much more niche and much smaller scale there too. Like people would do like $10,000 safe notes, $50,000 safe notes, maybe $100,000 safe notes. Um, the reason for these notes, instead of operating off of traditional equity financings where people give you a certain amount of money for a certain percentage of the company, was basically you would be able to 
in exchange for either getting a higher valuation cap or getting a discount off of a future round, be able to effectively push out when that mark-to-market is on valuation. And from a discounting perspective, even if it, you basically are saying, X investor, I guarantee you will get a 30% return by giving you a 30% discount or, um, or plus or minus, or whatever it may be. Um, which, by the way, is like for most investors, like, you know, those kinds of returns are like really good. Like, you know, but if you think that you're going to like 10x and like grow by like a thousand percent, like 30% is like completely in the noise. So, you know, that's where you can be creative around these things. And that's so, um, so we took a mechanism that, you know, normally people raise like 100K on. And uh, over the years, uh, it raised $200 million on safe notes, uh, which I think I I've never heard of. It's obscenely, an ex obscenely extreme data point, everybody. So, but it's, 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 a, it's an example of your entrepreneurial thinking. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, so technically speaking, technically speaking, we actually, before going public, only ever did one equity financing because it all, all the notes sort of converged <laughs> together. Uh, and, so. and, and in that first year when you're just starting, when the money's the most difficult to raise, how much of it was funded by the Hacker House? <laughs> I mean, most of it. So that's um, what people have said. So when did you get your first outside check outside of... So you guys understand the Hacker House, he rented a, a big house, he subleased the rooms, and he made a margin off of that. And he also, you also created this community that was also yeah. a competitive advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it turns out the ultimate form of due diligence on people is living with them. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you ended up getting your cash from the Hacker House, talent, yep. and also tech development. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and no, and people, it, it like actually got to a point where people were like so excited to live with the, like literally like the, the, the market rate for what people were bidding on for like a closet, you know, I, like, yeah. which it was, was around like $2,500 per month, mm -hmm. like for literally like a closet in the Hacker. Like it was, it was crazy. Like, you know, in terms of people were coming up with creative ideas for how can we just uh, people want to be a part of the community, like, and um, I was, uh, I was, it was just, it was just wild to see, you know, early on, um, just how much of, well, like, literally Wild West type mentality was it, but, um, but there was some, there was, there was, some, there was a lot of civility there to it at the same time. It's not, it's not like the movies in that sense. But, but that was your cash for the first how many months? Like, was that for the mm. first like, or the first like, you know, year, year, or two? and then yep. you got your outside yeah, capital from. Uh, yeah, safes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then started to get outside capital and yeah. safe. Started compiling that on, and 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 I think you know as you progress yourself, you can mark up the valuation caps. You can you know you don't have to give people as big a discounts. You can do other things, but um, yeah, it makes yeah. Uh, makes a difference. But but the point is is that like even by shifting out dilution like a year or two on things that literally can make all the difference. I mean, you guys are familiar with exponential scales on things. If you like even slight changes in terms of the timing of when that dilution happens just makes like dramatic differences in the total uh, outcome of what can happen from a uh, ownership stake perspective. Like to the point is, is that the reality is, is that most of the time, I mean, to end up with like a 5% stake, for example, by the time you go public, I mean, you be, people end up diluting themselves like 20 times over. I mean, it's, it's actually a lot of new shares that you just have to constantly issue and issue and issue and issue and issue. And that, that, that can be very challenging. So the key thing though, is that it's not just about and this is a very, very important point. Um, it's not just about the owner, like for example, as an entrepreneur, it's not just about the ownership stake that you have, it's about all the other employees that you have. You dilute, like yes, you get diluted on something, but like if you bring, if you, if you bring more shares in, you do more financing, more dilution, then it dilutes everybody else along with you. So, you know, what you want is to be able to, 
um, end up in a virtuous cycle of value growth with your employees rather than a vicious cycle of value growth where then you have to issue more shares to then make up for that value and change things. So. And were, were the safes capped then or was it just discounts? Were they uh, it was initially capped and then it was discounted. Then it was discounted without insurance. Yeah. Okay, that also makes a big difference <laughs> in the factors. I want to make sure that we save room for you guys to ask questions. I'm going to ask one more question and then we're going to open it up, which is, is that awesome? You did share about you know, the three cardinal principles that, that drive you, curiosity, passion, and drive. Right. Um, I understand that there's another one that you care deeply about, which is oftentimes not talked about, which is generosity. Um, I wanted to give you the floor to talk about that principle. How is that, how does that, has it, how is that a compass for your actions, and why should other entrepreneurs care about generosity when they're just worried about their survival? Yeah. No, it's a good question. I think, honestly, when you are initially worried about survival on that too, like, you have to think about generosity in a different way than, you know, you think about generosity, like, you know, when, um, when you're at a different stage of business. But I think the generosity part, um, as a, just a holistic philosophy goes a long way, going back to the mission and the purpose around what you're trying to do. Like, the point is, is that there, um, there is a bigger picture movement of what you want to build and what the impact of this is. Like, yes, in theory, the fundamental purpose of any corporation is to, you know, make money. Um, and that is true. And that has to be the case because, you know, without money, then you can't invest. And without investing, you can't build what you want to build. And if you can't build that, then you can't make the impact. But <clears throat> the point is, is that, that is the byproduct, not the end result from what you want to do. And from a first principles perspective, that's very, very important to be able to establish. And I think getting people along for that, like, for example, even early on, getting people along for that journey, um, making sure that, you know, people have equity as part of the company in that journey, as part of the whole generosity concept, all the way to, you know, I think when you do have an opportunity to have liquidity and when you do have an opportunity to be able to um, help others along the way, even outside of, you know, the company or, or operation or whatever you may do in life, um, I think that can be particularly meaningful. And in this case, um, you know, just um, not too long ago had, um, had done a donation, in this case of, of $70 million to the uh, Central Florida Foundation, which is uh, part of what um, is with the local community that we have out in Orlando, uh, Florida, where our headquarters is, where we're able to help uh, both local and global causes all around in terms of being able to make a difference and make an impact. And it's, um, <coughs> it's awesome just seeing you know, even uh, everything from, um, you know, helping a housing crisis locally all the way to a global scale. Um, you know, we have now uh, like uh, ocean um, trash cleanup robots that are being deployed, you know, with other partner programs that are around to be able to, you know, prevent uh, and remove the majority of trash out of the ocean by 2050, you know. So there's a, there's a lot of like really interesting things that can be done that you can also apply um, creative skills to um, earlier on. I think the reality is is that unfortunately, um, the vast majority of not just necessarily entrepreneurs, but just people generally probably don't really think in a around the generosity aspect until they're probably in the last you know couple of decades of life, maybe sometimes even literally until the exact end, you know. And I think that in part takes away from some of the importance of being able to apply yourself towards these causes and towards what makes a difference in the world more generally. Um, and I, I think that whole aspect of, you know, in, in my case, like philanthropy is, is going to be a super important part 
um, not just now, from the future. And, and that, again, it applies not just, it's not just about you know, the capital side of it and, and, and money side of it, about giving, but it's also, again, going back to the holistic mission around what you're trying to do and the causes you believe in. And for example, you know, the 100 million lives saved you know, we can do, I think, if we, if we accomplish that, you know, um, that, that'll be certainly the proudest achievement that what it could do, so. That's great. Um, I think there's a question here. Hey, Austin. Um, so I'm currently an undergrad. Um, and I'm an engineer looking to work at the intersection of software and hardware. And one of the questions I have for you is kind of like, how did you approach, you know, like go to market as like an early entrepreneur? So I'd imagine that as a hardware company, you know, as like a startup trying to sell to some of these auto manufacturers is actually going to be quite difficult. And you're going to run into a lot of pushback from these legacy companies. So curious to see how you approach it and how you kind of like iterated your way through go to market. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, um, I think in terms of the go-to-market side, uh, you have to take it in, like in this case, you know, you have to take it in different phases. You know, first is, is just make sure that you can get the buy-in of the right people at the right organizations that this can make a meaningful difference. It's all about reaching the right people. 99.999% of people at automakers would have absolutely no freaking clue what they're looking at when they're looking at a point cloud off of some, you know, LiDAR prototype, you know. But if you reach the right person, like as was the case, for example, back in like 2015, 2016 with Volvo, which is one of our, our lead partners and customers, you know, who actually had a LiDAR expert, you know, that was on board the team. He went up to Portola Valley, took a look at, uh, you know, the point cloud in the car, and he literally fell out of his chair, you know, the second that he saw that. When, when you have the context, it's like, wow, this really can make a huge difference. And then you get those champions and sponsors that have that vision for you with companies that you'd like to work with and partner with. And that's really, really important along the way. Otherwise, you will just get lost in the noise. You know, you won't be able to grow. So um, I think that's the most important part, um, at least in the B2B context that, you know, B2C is a little bit different, but um, that, that's sort of the world that we've been operating in. And for founders that wrestle with whether to go after smaller enterprises where they can iterate more quickly and get some type of deal quickly versus the bigger OEMs that are going to take forever and could kill the company, do you have any guidance on which you should choose? Yeah, start smaller and then work your way up. I mean, that's honestly the best. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like if someone's at, like, at the table say, hey, like, oh, let's go sign a billion-dollar deal tomorrow and they're a big company or a small company, what like, doesn't matter. Just take, like, focus on be customer-obsessed, you know, as the... As with the Amazon philosophy always is, but you know, but like, listen, if, if you have a choice of stuff there too, I mean, naturally, I think it's going to work out that you're going to work with smaller enterprises because they're more nimble. But you guys actually started pretty big with Volvo early on, or did you have smaller companies in advance of Volvo? Um, you know, we we, we did. Um, you know, I think, you know, we had even technology companies that were that were there earlier on. Um, I mean, I guess they weren't that much like I don't know the Ubers of this world, or okay. you know, or or whatever. Like, there's probably there's a bunch more they probably can talk about, but um, you know, I think um, uh, Volvo though. But it's all relative, right? So, for example, in the world of automakers, like Volvo is sure they're 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 an automaker, but they're actually they're a smaller. The no, yeah, no, no, they're actually they're, they're actually a smaller small. automaker. Know. You know, yeah, so yeah. so for example, like um, you know, in the in the Mercedes case, there too, they're you know they're they actually produce like. You know, three times the volume of what, yeah, of what Volvo does, point. for example. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I, I think um, so. It's all it's all relative. But you know, they're also like a massive, massive company too. That's so you have to be able to work through it. But you know, it's a risk reward thing, and if you can make it happen, then it makes a huge difference. Terrific. Other questions? I think we have. Okay. Thanks, Austin, for the many uh, brilliant ideas. Uh, I've worked with uh, several early stage companies, and what would be your advice 
when it's really early, low cash, to build team and bring other people on board? Um, I think that's where the um, <coughs> extreme efficiency matters. Uh, you have to be super scrappy early on. Um, you're going to have to find a way in one way or another to be able to get people on board with the mission, on people on board with the vision. That's where you know equity can come in handy. Um, you know, you you want to be smart about it. You don't want to be too stingy with you know equity early on in terms of what what you can provide. Um, at the same time, in terms of the opportunity and outcome, but just make sure that the people that you provide it to are going to be there for the long run, like day in, day out, you know, um, doing absolutely whatever it takes to make the business successful. And if you have those people <coughs> and, and can do it right, then that's really all, all you need. Um, now, I think at the same time, like I said, it's, it's amazing what, you know, even cash constrained, you know, what, what people can really do <laughs> when you put your mind to it to get to that next step. But the thing is, is that <clears throat> you have to make sure that the people that are along with you for the journey, make sure you recognize that there's no theoretical world where you can ever get to where you want to go to with the kind of cash constraints and with the constraints that you have. You have to see yourself taking it a step at a time. You visualize the end state, but then like break it down into the individual steps of like, what has to happen for you to go there? Like, what's the best case? What's the worst case? Like, what, what's the path to really be able to get there? And I think walking people along for that journey early on also makes a, a big difference in sort of getting them on board. And, and people are always going to be the number one expense for most types of companies here. So, Terrific. Other questions? I think we have... So we have about 150 people on YouTube and Zoom. So the most upvoted question is... If you had to do it over again, what aspects of your Luminar founder journey would you do the same versus do differently? <clears throat> um, I think the important part about being an entrepreneur is not getting everything right. Um, <laughs> you know, you will make mistakes all the time and probably beat yourself up for it. Um, the key thing is you just have to make the right decision more than 50% of the time. That's, that's, the, that's the key. You do that and you'll be in a, you'll be in a good spot. Um, but uh, I think at a general level, um, a lot of things had to work out, obviously, very well in lockstep to get to, to, get to the stage of where we're at. But um, I would just say also like, Emphasis on the right people. I know people talk about it all the time, but cannot be stressed enough. But making sure that you have the right people in the right roles in the right positions. And the way you structure and set up teams is going to look dramatically different every two years as a growing business. And you have to constantly be rethinking how you're structuring the teams, the level of talent that you're able to get in and attract to the business, <clears throat> and at the same time, um, I think learning more about, how, like, I would just say org structures. It, it sounds kind of boring, but like, just like, there's there's resources now where you can look up org structures of like technology companies and how things are set up, and like ask other entrepreneurs of how they set things up, and like 
how they manage the teams and how they actually, <laughs> you know, succeed at scaling, I think is, is super important. Um, you know, the reality is, is that, uh, like I said, there's always a lot of different steps and a lot of things that you can have done differently along the way too. But I think that is one of those things that will substantially reduce the amount of insanity that you have to go through on a year-to-year -year basis if you get that right. And there's some parts that I got it right very well, and there's some parts that along the journey that I had to learn. That's a great way to frame it. It's learning. <laughs> it's learning. Um, I think we have time for one or two more. There's a question right here. Yes. Hi. Hello. You're on. You're on. Um, as a hardware-focused tech company in the automotive industry, I'm curious if and how supply chain disruptions during the pandemic affected Luminar and whether you're still feeling those effects um, given kind of like the long-term nature of that technology uh, or the development of that technology. And then additionally, I'm also curious how you view Luminar in this new currently shaping or currently um, evolving world as it relates to like geopolitics um, in, in the tech industry, especially as it relates to sensors as we've seen like recently over the past year, um, this sort of change on, you know, between namely like China and the U.S. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so I'd say a couple thoughts in general. Uh, from a supply chain standpoint there too, there's, uh, I think if there's anything that people have recognized over the course of the past couple of years is that supply chains are very important, very critical, and cannot be taken for granted. Um, this is a completely different shift in mentality for automakers, for big companies, for everyone alike. And I think fortunately we've been largely insulated from a lot of that stuff given for two reasons. One is sort of the obvious that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not a, uh, at least yet, uh, like a, a, a Fortune 100 company that, you know, produces, um, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of product, uh, you know, that, at, at this stage. Um, you know, that, that has to worry about some of the larger scale, you know, challenges or issues. But I'd, I'd say more specifically, um, given, given that there's, there's a lot of development vehicles, development work, we're really scaling up in some pretty larger scale numbers starting, you know, more um, later on this year or next year, or, you know, the following year when, we, when we're scaling with series production with our automakers. <clears throat> but the other part is, is that uh, made an early bet to be able to be completely vertically integrated from the chip level up. And a lot of the semiconductor shortage challenges that have happened um, have, uh, well, I would say just that a lot of the supply chain shortages that have happened have been around semiconductors. And that's where being vertically integrated at the semiconductor level, where we control that whole side of it, everything from the, I actually have three different uh, companies that, that Luminar owns um, that, uh, that are part of this. It's one is Black Force Engineering, the other is called Optigration, the other is called Freedom Photonics. And uh, so basically it does a processing chip, uh, the indium gallium arsenide receiver chip, and then we have um, the laser chip uh, for the last one. So uh, having control over that supply chain is definitely very, very helpful. Um, and that's also made a huge difference in sort of weathering that storm. Um, the, other, the other part of it is uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, yeah, I, I would say that um, uh, there's a lot of the stuff that people talk about generally um, I would just say there's there's always an infinite amount of talk about politics, probably way more than there should be um, for things that don't end up being substantive issues um, to the real world, at least for these kinds of industries and whatnot. 
Um, you know, I think the relevant part is that you have to build a global supply chain ecosystem that is available to be able to, in a cost-effective way, provide product to different customers globally, like particularly for this industry where um, like some people can get away with just operating something in the US, for example, like automakers are very globally distributed. You know, like you have these major centers in, you know, Germany or Japan or Sweden or China or, you know, um, around around the world or wherever it may be. So, um, so that's why we, we actually have a, a, our first uh, major uh, series production factory they're building out is in Mexico um, that we have that's sort of a more uh, neutral location, you know, when it comes down to that. And then uh, we actually will be building out a, another factory in Asia um, to be able to support customers there and, and beyond globally. Um, this is something that we literally just announced uh, a few hours ago today um, to support the expanded volume from companies like Mercedes and beyond globally. So it's important. I have to wrap it up, Austin. But but yeah. so but but thank you so much for sharing so generously. Thank you everybody for tuning in and coming to this session of the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar. And please join us next week when we'll have Andreessen Horowitz, General Partner Connie Chan, as our special guest. And as always, you can go to ecorner.stanford.edu to see all of the material. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Austin. All right, thank you. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.